This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Thanks, Dewey. Joining us today is the Reverend Dr. John Fesco, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Academic Dean at Westminster Seminary, California. John is the author of a number of books, the most recent of which is Word, Water, and Spirit, a Reformed Perspective on Baptism. And all his titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott, it's good to be back with you. You have published a book that you have and I have in our hot little hands, including a bibliography, 400 and some pages on baptism. Tell us a little bit, first of all, about the structure of the book. Well, what I wanted to do is break it down into three major sections, the first of which would be to rehearse the history of the doctrine. The second would be to go into a biblical theological exposition of the doctrine. And then third would be to construct uh, a systematic theological understanding of the doctrine from there. There are a lot of books about baptism. Why another one? Why this one? Sure. I think there are a lot of terrific books out there. Uh, Say, for example, I've mentioned this uh, elsewhere, that John Murray's little book on baptism is very helpful. There are a number of treatments in reform systematics that you can find. But I didn't find just one single place where I could go to research and look at and understand the history of the doctrine. You can find a number of people making reference, say, to the biblical theological exposition of the doctrine. Meredith Klein, for example, has a little book by Oath Consigned, which was, I think, three journal articles that he put together in book form. But even then, it wasn't as expansive as I wanted to treat the subject. And so I figured, let me see if I can put something together in one place that would help me, but then if it was helpful to me, then perhaps maybe somebody else would find it helpful as well. How has the doctrine of baptism developed? Do we have today, for example, in Reformed churches, the exact same doctrine of baptism as was held, let's say, in the third century in the Western church? That's one of the things I think that a lot of people don't uh, notice at first glance is that, for example, people will appeal to Tertullian as somebody who demurred from infant baptism and said, well, it's perhaps better if we postpone it until a child is of such of age that he can understand what kind of an obligation that he's making. And so people will say, aha, look, there's an early Baptist position, and then they move on from there. But yet, if you take a look at the history, you take a look at the things that each one of these theologians are saying, especially in the earlier church, it's often conveyed with some sort of, I don't know what else to call it other than a magical understanding of the water. And I don't want to say that that's a universal view, but it's nevertheless quite pervasive in much of the literature. And so they appeal to them, and I want to say, well, isn't that similar to appealing to a Roman Catholic's reason for wanting to uh, baptize an adult? So it's not an exact one-to-one correspondence between, say, a contemporary Baptist viewpoint today and, say, the views of Tertullian in the third century. And so it's so important, I thought, to trace out the ideas because inevitably a theologian's view of baptism is often connected with his understanding of the sacraments in general, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and often how he constructs his doctrine of the sacraments is going to reflect significantly on what his understanding of baptism is. And so I'd start a little bit more broadly with the understanding of the sacraments, and then from there burrow into the specific view on baptism. 
What is a sacrament then? Well, it all depends on who you talk to in the history of the church, and this is why I wanted to have this unfolding of the history. Uh, For the Westminster divines and for historic Presbyterianism, it's a sacred sign of the covenant, a holy sign of the covenant signifying Christ and his benefits. But if you ask a Roman Catholic, a sacrament is uh, something that is a visible form of the invisible grace of God, but the grace of God in that particular case is the created grace of God, a substance that the Holy Spirit creates and is infused to the person. If you ask Zwingli, for example, what a sacrament is, he'll say, based upon the use in its uh, ancient Roman context, that this is, a, this is an oath or a pledge that a soldier will take to his commanding officer. So it just all depends on who you talk to. And, of course, being a Presbyterian and you being a three-forms guy, and for both of us as seminary profs here, we affirm both sets of confessions that will agree that it's a sacred sign or a holy sign and seal of the covenant of grace representing Christ. And I think that there's an exegetical and historical case to be made for that definition. Now, Peter Lombard is the fellow you were referring to earlier who said it's a visible sign of an invisible grace. Mm -hmm. Reformed theology wouldn't necessarily disagree with that formula, but we might want to reinterpret some of the terms in the formula. Sure. I think that that's one of the things you do find is that the Reformation was in conversation with previous generations, with medieval theologians. And so what Calvin says, for example, I think at that point is, okay, he says, sure, it's a visible sign of an invisible grace, but he says— that definition is classic and as good as it is, he says, leaves too much open for misinterpretation. So let's go on here and define what else it means. So you're right in that we would agree generally perhaps with it, but we would always want to say, well, let's talk a little bit more about what this actually means, because we would have differing views, say, vis-a-vis Roman Catholicism as to what grace is, for example. Let's go back to the fathers. Now, you mentioned earlier that some of the fathers, maybe many of them, had what you described as a magical view mm-hmm. of the sacraments generally and baptism specifically. Was that true of all of the fathers? I can't say conclusively. Like I say, it's certainly a large impression that you get from a number of them, or at least the number of them that I've read. But I'm sure that there was somebody out there that didn't hold to it. But I think that you see the taking over of the language of, say, Romans 6, that we're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life, that you see, I think, in some of the uh, earlier documents. Say, for example, I think the Shepherd of Hermas is one of the first places where that kind of language begins to be carried on. And that goes back to the early second century. So it develops quite early. As to why it develops quite early— The only thing that I can guess, and I think I think out loud on this at some point in the book, is that for the same reasons that the Pharisees thought that circumcision saved, is that our tendency, perhaps as sinful human beings, is always to want to look away to something else uh, rather than to the one to whom the sacraments point, and that is Christ. What happened to baptism in the medieval church, particularly in the Western church? Uh, In one sense, I think that we could say that baptism in the medieval view— I can't say this with absolute certainty, but it became fairly commonplace and uh, fairly uniform to a certain degree, I think. And it was uh, believed that when you were baptized, you end up with this infusion of a created substance or created grace. And I think you could say that while maybe not every single rank-and-file theologian would fall in on that particular explanation, you can say that the Council of Trent is perhaps the distillation of the medieval views, and it's more or less a summary of what has been taught in the Church or what had been taught in the Church up until that point when those declarations were made, and I believe it was in 1546 and 47 in the sixth session. And then later on, 
in the Catechism of the Council of Trent. What happened to baptism in the Reformation? Did the Reformation accept what the fathers and the medieval theologians had said about baptism? Well, that's a tricky question in that, from one sense, they did not accept what they had to say about baptism. So, for example, you find the Reformers virtually to a man saying that our union with Christ comes at faith and not in baptism, as the Roman Catholic, or at this point the Catholic Church had argued uh, later on the Roman Catholic Church post-Trent. And so they would disagree with them on that point. They would also disagree with the idea of ex opere operato, in other words, that baptism is efficacious merely by its performance, so that all someone has to do is sprinkle someone with the holy water and they are automatically regenerated. I think that at least the majority report on the Reformation idea can be found, say, either in the Heidelberg Catechism or, say, for example, in the Westminster Standards of the Belgic, where in effect it's to say that, no, regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it's not as a result of the water, but rather the water points to the person and work of Christ. How did the Lutherans and the Reformed diverge on baptism? That's an interesting question because I think that initially— There's perhaps very little that you can find disagreeable, say, in Luther's uh, small catechism about what he has to say about baptism. And what some Lutheran scholars say, and I note this in the book, is that it was later Lutheranism that somewhat departed from that and actually embraced something of a baptismal regeneration view, whereas the Reformed, almost universally, but not quite, there were some holdouts here and there, would argue that regeneration was not tied to the moment of administration. And I think that that's one of the key elements that you have to have in a view of baptismal regeneration, that at the moment of baptism, the person is regenerated. So you do see some cleavage there between Reformed views and later Lutheran views, but perhaps that's a question of Luther versus the Lutherans that some person might want to investigate, but there is that cleavage there between Luther and his followers. And there's a third group working with the doctrine of baptism in the 16th century, in the Reformation context, although not necessarily Protestant, strictly speaking, and that was the Anabaptists. So how did they respond to the medieval heritage, and how did they relate to the Protestants, the Reformed, and the Lutherans? Yeah, they, with the Reformers, both Reformed and Lutheran, rejected the practice of baptism. But in addition, a number of them had initially begun the work of Reformation with some of the uh, first-generation Reformers, whether it was Zwingli or whether it was Luther, but they became quickly dissatisfied with the pace of Reformation and wanted to move faster. And one of the things that they did is they thought that infant baptism, for example, was unscriptural. And some of the language I think you find them using is blasphemous and heretical, which in one sense that kind of language is a little bit more common than it is today, especially about baptism. But they basically said that baptism was entirely and almost exclusively, depending upon the individual, but entirely and exclusively man's pledge to God, whereas I think almost to a man you could say that the Reformers and the Reformed tradition especially, would say that, no, baptism is first and foremost something that God is saying and doing, and secondly, it is indicative of man's response. And there may be some variation of emphasis, but I think that those two points are practically universal among the the Reformers of the 16th century. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark, and we're talking to John Fesco about his new book, Word, Water, and Spirit, a Reformed Perspective on Baptism, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, W-S-C-A-L dot E-D-U. John, the second section of the book is a biblical theological account of baptism. 
first of all, when you say biblical theological, what does that mean, sure. and why did you take that approach? Yeah, a biblical theology in contrast to systematic theology, the most helpful illustration I can think of is Gerhardus Voss's little statement where he says, biblical theology takes the biblical or the exegetical data from the scriptures and it draws a straight line. In other words, it traces a doctrine from Genesis to Revelation and traces its organic and progressive development and revelation. Whereas systematic theology takes the same exegetical data and organizes it in terms of a circle. In other words, it shows how it logically coheres, how it's truthful and it's consistent in both testaments regardless of the period, and it shows its consistency not only in terms of the doctrine itself but how it relates to the scriptures as well as to the other teachings of scripture. And so with respect to biblical theology and baptism, I think in most of the books that I've read, they... I don't know, this is perhaps, I'm guilty of a slight over-exaggeration, but there's very little, little to no attention given to biblical theology of baptism, except for only incidental references as people will reference New Testament texts that have Old Testament texts buried in them. They'll explain them perhaps as it relates to the New Testament context, but they won't trace it out. Like I said at the beginning, I think Klein's little book, which is perhaps about, I don't know, 90 to 100 pages, it's very small, is one of the only ones exclusively devoted to a biblical theology of baptism. But even then, I want to say he focuses upon the circumcision baptism link, and he focuses almost exclusively, but close to it, to the judgment side of baptism, and he doesn't positively exposit other ideas, which is explainable and understandable because it was just three journal articles that he put together, so it wasn't, I think, perhaps meant to be an exhaustive biblical theology of baptism. If biblical theology is the unfolding message of salvation and the unfolding word of God to his people in redemptive history, what is the unfolding story of baptism in Scripture? Sure. That's, I think, such an important and perhaps rarely asked question, because I think a lot of people will understand and affirm, okay, yes, circumcision in the Old Testament, and yes, baptism in the New Testament— And they perhaps will admit that, okay, they're somehow connected because they're both initiatory rites, uh, circumcision for the Old Testament folks and baptism for New Testament folks. As far as I can tell, that's about as far as the analysis goes. And most people, or at least coming out of Baptist circles, will say, well, circumcision was a sign of national identity. I don't want to be crass, but it's something to the effect of it's a passport and it's what distinguishes you from the Gentiles. And that's true. It does distinguish you from Gentile. But in a nutshell, what I can say is circumcision and why circumcision, perhaps to put a sub-question in there, circumcision was given by God to say the seed of Abraham or the seed of the woman, the seed who was to come, the descendant, the Messiah, would be cut off, and you find this language in the prophets, the exact language of circumcision was going to be cut off from the people of God to bring about, in a sense, the outpouring of the Spirit. And it's baptism that uh, visually preaches or teaches that outpouring of the Spirit, and it's circumcision that visibly preaches that cutting off of the seed who was to come. And so, in a sense, you can say that with circumcision and baptism, you get all of redemptive history. Now, what some people will say at this point is to say, well, how in the world can you squeeze all of that out of two rights? And I say this is a really important principle that the Reformers and Reformed theologians have really emphasized over the years— is that you can have the Word alone, but you can never have the sacrament alone. The sacrament is always dependent upon the Word. 
And so ideally you should get that message of the work of Christ bringing the outpouring of the Spirit, as Paul summarizes it, say, in Galatians 3.13 and 14, is that you get that message when you hear the preaching of the gospel, so you hear it with your ears, and then it is visibly preached to your eyes. And for some who actually receive it, say, the person baptized, then it's also preached to the other senses. So that's, in a word, why baptism, I suppose. When we come back, I've got a question for you, and that is about your own personal development. You now hold views about baptism that, let's say, 15 years ago or more, you didn't hold. Mm -hmm. And when we come back, I want you to explain what happened and why you changed. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. John, most American evangelicals, of whom there are about... 60 million hold a view that the proper candidates for baptism are those who are conscious of having come to faith and are able to make an adult profession of faith. Within that 60 million, there is a small minority of people who would hold another view that God has always commanded the initiation of the children of believers into the visible covenant community. You have held the first view. You now hold the second view. What happened? One of the reasons why I wrote the book is to show our Baptist and more broadly evangelical friends why we as Presbyterians and Reformed folks baptize our infants and that there's a biblical reason for it. And at least for me personally, I think that as I look back on the annals of my mind, so to speak, that one of the questions that I had about infant baptism in per se was, was it correct? And I wanted to be able, as a Presbyterian minister, not to have to hold my breath, if you will, when I did it. I wanted to make sure that I believed uh, scripturally as I practiced. I think it's Baptists that hold their breath, if I I remember correctly. Exactly. You mean hold your nose. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's one of my professors told a story once that uh, it used to be that they had a practical theology class at the Baptist seminary where you practiced baptizing people and that the uh, professor couldn't see over the wall because there wasn't a glass partition there and that one of the students immersed his friend who was the one to be practiced upon and he began to stumble and said, I'm not quite sure what's to happen next. Meanwhile, the man had swam, he swam away uh, and the professor stood up and said, for the love of God, let the man up. Let him breathe. Let him breathe. And, of course, the class was all in on the joke. So, yeah, that, that, that adds holding holding your breath a whole new meaning. But, um, yeah, I think that the big difference here is that I started to ask the question, well, how has God dealt with his people historically? And it's always been through the doctrine of the covenant. God has never dealt with man apart from a covenant. And in particular, it's the question of, you know, and this is where our will differ from our Baptist friends is that I found that it's almost exclusively upon the New Testament that our Baptist friends will build their doctrine of baptism. And I ask the question, what other doctrine do we ever do that with? We always build a doctrine upon the entirety of Scripture. 
And I think you see a classic point in this with the Gospels where John the Baptist says to Jesus and the surrounding crowds, the man who comes after me, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, I baptize you with water, he's going to baptize you with spirit and fire. This isn't something new, but John's drawing upon the promises of the Old Testament from Isaiah, from Joel, from Ezekiel in this outpouring of the Spirit. And so you have to be driven to go back to the Old Testament. And, or, for example, when Peter says, for the promises to you and to your children after you, he's talking of the children there. Karl Barth argues that the term in the Greek there is one of, uh, of geographical extension, that it's going to be to those children who in future generations make the profession of faith. And yet that phrase comes again from the Old Testament, which is used for Gentiles, and not only for Gentiles, but he's echoing, among many other texts, Genesis 17, with God giving the sign of the covenant. And then even another point that we could bring up here is that, you know, when Paul in Galatians 3 says that we are all children of Abraham, you can't simply say that, well, Abraham was a part of the Old Covenant, i.e. Old Testament, and therefore sweep away circumcision and everything with it. And that, I think, is one of the most fundamental mistakes of Baptist exegesis, for example, of uh, the promises of Jeremiah in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, because the prophet says, and God speaks to the prophet and says, I will give you a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with your fathers when they left Egypt. In other words, Jeremiah is specifically speaking of not every single Old Testament covenant, but specifically the Mosaic covenant. And in other words, the Abrahamic covenant preaches the gospel, as Paul clearly says in Galatians 3. And Romans 4, right? Yeah, and Romans 4. I mean, and Abraham is the father of all believers, father of New Testament believers. He's the father of Gentile believers because he believed before he was circumcised. He's the father of Jewish believers because he believed after he was circumcised. And isn't it the case that throughout the New Testament, Abraham is consistently pictured as the paradigm for believers? It's not actually Moses who's the paradigm. I mean, he is mentioned among the faithful in Hebrews, but even there he gets marginalized relative to Jesus. Moses is a worker in the house. Jesus owns the house. And as you say, Galatians 3 and then Galatians 4. And then, of course, there's the whole language about Old Covenant in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. that when you see the phrase Old Covenant, it's actually referring specifically to Moses, right? 2 Corinthians 3, Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, it's all going back to Moses. So I want you to flesh that out a little bit, because I think this might be new for the listener, at least possibly, that Abraham and Moses have distinct functions— in the history of salvation. So explain that a little more. Yeah. Abraham is given a promise, and it's that God will save him and his children after him, his offspring after him. Now, is that automatic? No, it's not automatic, because, I mean, you see, for example, Jacob and Esau, and Esau is not saved. You see, they're both sons of the same father and the same mother, as Paul says, for example, in Romans 9, but yet Esau is not loved. So this is the thing, is I think, that's crucial, is that circumcision preaches— that's not automatically save, as baptism does preach. And the overall message is if you don't have faith in the one to whom the sign points, well, then you end up being judged. And so this is a missing element, I think, from much Baptist theology, as well as even some contemporary Reformed expressions, is the idea that uh, the sacraments are double-edged. In other words, they bring both judgment and blessing, as does the Word, as does the Lord's Supper, as does Christ. Uh, You either fall upon the rock or the rock falls upon you. But going back to, say, for example, Romans 4, 
a number of Baptist exegetes will say, this circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith for Abraham alone, and it's not a universal sign. And I want to say, wait a minute, pull the lever here for a second and stop the train, because (laughs) circumcision is not a private sign. It's clearly given in Genesis 17 very publicly as a covenant sign for the entire people of God. So it's not something that's small. I think I guess I can also add that, for example, like in Fred Malone's book on the baptism of disciples alone, which is perhaps one of the more exhaustive explanations of what some people call believer's baptism, which I'm not fond of that term because Reformed folks believe in believer's baptism, too. Yeah, if somebody's hitherto <laughs> unbaptized, that's right. just as if somebody was hitherto uncircumcised, right then they need to receive the sign of admission into the visible covenant sure. community. So. Absolutely. But the terminology aside, for example, he doesn't really treat Galatians 3. He makes that error in terms of the exegesis of Jeremiah 31, thinking that it refers to everything in the Old Testament. And it was all of these things put together. I don't want to say that there was one silver bullet, but really the testimony, the whole, that ultimately convinced me that baptism of infants is true. Because I think one of the points I can make, at least at this point, and this is why I think the biblical theology of the doctrine is so important, is I think I'm steeled and convinced that infant baptism is in the New Testament. Well, where? You know, our Baptist friends say there's not a single record of the baptism of an infant. I want to say, well, look at 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, all were baptized in the cloud, all were baptized in the sea, all were baptized into, the Mo- into Moses. I don't have the time to expand upon it, but the cloud is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And here you have infants— baptized into the cloud. And what's fascinating about all of this— On dry ground, by the way. Yeah, on dry ground, right? So who got sprinkled? (laughs) They all got sprinkled, and I I always like to say to my Baptist (laughs) friends, who got immersed? Exactly. Pharaoh and his hosts. I mean, actually, prior to the coming of Christ— going under the water is not always a good thing. Exactly. If you were were either in the ark or you were immersed. That's right. Okay, so No, absolutely. And so I want to say, okay, yeah, notice they all got—they all were baptized, and including infants— And when you see the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit in Joel, it's on your young and old, male and female, slave and free. Which doesn't really help the Baptist, right? Because my Baptist friends will tell me, well, when Peter in Acts 2.39 says the promise Mm -hmm. is to you and to your children, they say, well, that doesn't refer to Genesis 17. That refers to Joel. Well, then I say, well, go read Joel. Is not Joel simply, first of all, a restatement of Abraham, the promise given to Abraham, I'll be a God to you and to your children. Exactly. But secondly— It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the whole household. Yes. And incidentally, that's where in the Greek Septuagint, Joel says upon the ecclesia, it's the gathering of the church, which Joel makes specific reference to say, gather the nursing infants. And so all of this is to say is that, you know, baptism testifies that the church has received the outpouring of the baptism of the Spirit upon everyone. And so then the next quick question usually comes up is, well, what about the Lord's Supper? Well, then are you saying that they sh- the infants should be admitted to the Lord's Supper? And I want to say this is where the distinction between covenant initiation and covenant ratification comes in. I think the assumption is, is that baptism and the Lord's Supper, they both function in the same way in exactly the precise same manner. And I want to say no. In baptism, we're passive. We receive it. The Lord's Supper, we're active. And I say, you look at 1 Corinthians 11, and it's clear. You're supposed to rightly recognize the body of Christ. And in so doing, what that is, is it's a miniature second coming, final judgment, where Christ is present, and we have to ask ourselves, do I look to Christ by faith alone? And so uh, I think a concomitant of that as well is that so many people assume the background to the Lord's Supper is the Passover. Infants, therefore, partook of the Passover, 
which is a fact, not an evidence. Evidence points in the opposite direction. See Cornell Venema's excellent book yes. on, on infant uh, communion. Exactly. So that's not fact and evidence. But I think the chief Old Testament event behind the Lord's Supper is not the Passover, but rather the covenant ratification in Exodus 24, where you find the blood of the covenant mentioned there, the people ratifying the covenant, and then Moses, the elders, and Aaron, and his sons alone ascending and eating unharmed in the presence of the Lord, so that when Christ invokes the blood of the covenant in the end of the Gospels, it's to Exodus 24, not chiefly to the Passover. Passover features, but it's not the dominant uh, the dominant Old Testament event. So I think you put all of those things together, and again, it's, I have to say, if you're unconvinced, <laughs> read the book and then we'll talk. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Word, yeah. Word, Water, and Spirit by John Fesco, a reformed perspective on baptism. It's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, WSCAL.edu. Obviously, you can't recapitulate sure. and, you, and you shouldn't recapitulate <laughs> the entire book. But right. I hope that this discussion has stimulated the listener to look into this a little further and not to take for granted everything that they may have heard about baptism, and particularly everything they may have heard or may think they know about infant baptism. Because at the end of the day, it was Scripture that drove you. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. It was Scripture. And and I want to say, obviously, it would be the same for the Reformers, and I don't want to cast aspersions upon our Baptist friends, because our Baptist friends will also say, well, Scripture is driving me. And so certainly we can respect their convictions at that point. But I always like to say this. I'm sure I'm not the first to say one of us is wrong. Both of us can't be right. Either you do or you don't baptize infants. And so that's why we, in the end, have to go back to the Scriptures in concert with the history of the doctrine and and take a look at these things and say, okay, which position best comports with the biblical data and the biblical evidence? And obviously, we're convinced that it's uh, one to include the uh, baptism of infants. But let me say this much is that the book is not primarily focused around that one subject, though it certainly is a chief element, and that I'm hoping that by the book I can accomplish the goal of bringing a greater corporate understanding to baptism as a whole across the church, not just to the Reformed folks, so that maybe we don't baptize the same people, but our Baptist brethren and evangelical brothers and sisters will have a more biblical understanding of baptism. One, for example, that understands that, hey, this isn't exclusively a sign of blessing. It can be a sign of judgment. So that, that I think, is my goal, is to build more bridges than I want to tear any down. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.